Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talks podcast. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Imagine having experienced mentors with decades of wisdom delivered right to your ears. We talk about purpose, legacy, influence, love, sex, success, and so, so much more. Don't forget to leave us a review, subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher, and join the thousands of other changemakers in our community on Facebook, YouTube, or go to www.mantalks.com. So today I have a very special guest with me. I'm in New York, and unfortunately, Mr. Roger Nairn uh, couldn't join us. But I have a very special guest to me with me today, uh, whose name happens to be Mr. Jonathan Fields. And for those of you to, who have never heard of Jonathan before, he is the founder of the Good Life Project. Now, the Good Life Project has, has led a global community in the quest to live a more meaningful, connected, and vital life. They produce a top-rated podcast, which I've had the honor of being on, and a video series with millions of listens and views in more than 150 countries around the world, where Jonathan will regularly share conversations with world-leading voices like Sir Kenneth Robinson, Elizabeth Gilbert, Milton Glaser, Brene Brown, Gretchen Rubin, and hundreds and hundreds of more people. Um, so today we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about how he's built a community. We're going to talk about his personal journey. Uh, we're going to dig into some of the things that he's learned by interviewing some of these absolutely incredible people and his background. And then we're going to talk a little bit about how to live a good life, soulful stories, surprising science, and practical wisdom. That's his most uh, recent book. So, you know, Jonathan's been featured on the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Business Week, Fast Company, pretty much every single major media outlet. He's got an incredible story. Uh, he used to be a securities lawyer, which was um, which is something which we talk about a little bit. Uh, he's got an amazing story about 9-11, and he dives into his personal experience of being an entrepreneur and starting his own yoga, yoga company and yoga business, uh, which he sold to do his own writing and which has led him down the path that he's on now. So he's got an absolutely amazing journey. This is one of the most wisdom-packed interviews that I, I believe I've ever, ever done. And sitting with him in his beautiful apartment in New York did not hurt either. So without uh, taking up any more of your time, I would love to introduce Mr. Jonathan Fields. All right, Jonathan, thank you so much for uh, for being on the Man Talks podcast. Hey, my pleasure. So, I mean, I've I've heard so many great things about you uh, from so many people. We uh, we were fortunate enough to be connected uh, through a friend of ours, mutual friend, and I'm really I'm really excited about this because you know I've been following your work with the Good Life Project, and um, but before we get into the Good Life Project, we we always ask all of our guests have a very similar question, which is share with us a story about a defining moment in your life and why it's important to you. Mm. So I'm 50, so there are a lot of stories <laughs> <laughs> um, that I could touch down into. One of them for me was 9-11. I'm a New Yorker, mm. born just outside and been in the city for my entire adult life. In September of 2011, I was married, still married, um, had a three-month-old baby, a new home. And on September 10th, 2001, I signed a six-year lease for a floor in a building to open a yoga studio. Hmm. And I was all excited, went to bed, and woke up the next morning, and my city was destroyed. Yeah. I mean, you can imagine the emotions that would just wash through somebody at that point. You know, Immediately, the first thought is, of course, okay when you saw what happened and if you've been in the city and you've been down there and you knew the vastness of the buildings that used to stand there and you knew how many thousands of people were in them, you kind of realized pretty quickly that as a longtime New Yorker, you were going to lose somebody that day. Mm. There, was, there were very few people who got out without that. And in fact, we did. And the person who we knew was a friend who um, was up on the 108th floor or whatever it was, the, basically the firm that got completely wiped out. He was there. And he was married. He had a two-and-a-half-year-old son, I think a nine-month-old son, 
had just finished building their dream house. Um, so we didn't realize that at the moment, but we started calling around and thinking, okay, who do I know? And we realized, okay, so we called his wife and found out, yeah, they hadn't heard anything from him. And then at the same time, my mind is thinking, okay, I just committed huge amount of my life and money and to opening a business, um, which needs to support my three-month-old baby and my wife and my family and my mortgage and whatever else may be. And New York is being, is like, we didn't know whether this was the first of what would then become World War III. We didn't know whether what was, what was coming, mm. you know? So am I going to continue? Am I really going to do this? We ended up, in other words, it gets blurry here, either that day or the next day, taking a car up to um, our friend's wife's house up in Westchester, north of New York, and kind of sitting vigil there, I don't know, 20, 30 people just with the TVs on. Um, waiting for a phone to ring. Yeah, he made it out. That call never came. Eventually, at the end of that day, everybody went home. My wife and I were the last people there with our little three-month-old baby in her car seat and snoozing out. And my wife and, and her friend were like, we're going to go upstairs and put the little one to bed. Would you mind going up and reading the two-and-a-half-year-old story? And I re like I, it's like it happened yesterday. I remember walking up the steps, you know, this gorgeous new home. And just opening the door and seeing this little kid sitting in bed, you know, like half tucked under the blankets with a book on his lap, waiting for his dad to read him a story. Hmm. And I'm like, ah. Oh. And dad never came home. Hmm. Driving home that night, um, it really became clear. You know, we have one pass through. And this was something that I could not do. When I thought about what am I going to do moving forward now? Am I going to open this thing? And how am I going to live my life? And there's so much emotion just on all levels. But the big decision I had to make quickly was, am I going to now build this thing I thought I was going to build? And the answer was, yeah, I have to. And I committed to that. And two months later, in November, we opened and we had to profoundly change everything we're going to do. I was like, oh, big celebration. You're like, everybody come, pre-sell it like a gym. And of course, that was all out the window because the, the city was literally a morgue and a funeral. I mean, the entirety of Manhattan was a funeral. And, you know, you, you could smell it and taste the smoke in the air everywhere you went. But I had to do this. So we had changed everything. We changed the ethos. And we basically said, this is a place where you can just come and be with people. And, you know, come to class, sign up. Awesome. But if you just need to come, just come. The pier where many of the relief workers were staged was two avenue blocks away from us. And so we, you know, we just invited people up, just come. And um, and we flourished quickly and beautifully in no small part because the city was never more in need of community and healing and a place to just be. People were literally just walking around in a daze, like, what do I do? And that, that quote, business, you know, became this astonishing community. It flourished financially, it flourished as a company, but bigger picture, it flourished as a community. It flourished as a place where people could come and just reconnect. They could touch stone, they could hug people, they could just be. So was that the very beginning of you getting to dive into seeing the impact of being, you know, building a community? Because it sounds like that was un unintentional that, in some way. Yeah, there were maybe two wake-up calls there. One was, I'm not invincible. Mm. You know, my friend didn't go to work that morning expecting not to come home. Yeah. Yet that's what happened. And also, yeah, maybe there's a bigger something that I need to participate in. And maybe uh, I'm a wired entrepreneur. I have been since I was a kid. I'm a lemonade stand kid. <laughs> I was an artist and an entrepreneur as a kid. And to this day, I'm, I'm still, I've taken some weird sidelines into practicing law, for example, but you know, fundamentally, that's still who I am. I'm, I'm a weird artist and entrepreneur. And for some reason, also building communities at every stop along the way has become a central part of what we do. And what I've realized just more recently is that the reason that we've been doing that is very similar to what you're doing, which is that it's the unlock key, mm. is that, you know, digital flattens the world, mm -hmm. but human beings in a room, there's there's no replacement for that. Yeah. Um the vulnerability, the trust, the unfolding, the openness, the sense of um, space, liberation, grace. You can't create that remotely. 
Yeah. Um, and that's, I think intuitively I felt that early on with what we were doing and it's, it's become a central piece of, even though I'm a couple of iterations from that at this point, you know, the company was eventually sold. It's, it's become the heartbeat of pretty much everything that, that we do. Hmm. Very interesting. So let's just go back a second. Cause I know that you were a, a securities lawyer, right? I was. Yeah. yeah so in a very past life now. <laughs> so, so you grew up outside of New York yeah. and were your parents in law? Like where, no. where did that progression? My come mom from? was sort of a bohemian hippie craft person. Um, <laughs> who, um, you know, on any given morning, depending on how old I was, could be found in her studio um, as a potter or um, driving an ambulance for the local volunteer ambulance corps as fast as she could through town. <laughs> she sounds pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, she's kind of badass. And, uh, and my dad um, was an academic. He had one job for his entire career. Um, wow. He was a researcher. He researched human cognition, the human learning process, and he ran a lab okay. until two years ago, three years ago, where he still researches, but um, he just pulled himself out of academia. So brought up in, the, in a world with, with two very different parents who viewed the world through probably similar values, but just experienced the world very differently. Hmm. Very interesting. And so you know, with the work that your father did, did you ever dive into that or, or speak with him about that? Cause that sounds like something that, you know, yeah, there could be things that are, are pulled into the work that you've ended up doing. There, I mean, there were summers where when I was, when I was a kid and I was teaching myself how to code a little bit, you know, and he needed some, he started out when I was a little kid, his main subjects were rats and pigeons. <laughs> and it was interesting. Like that you go to his lab and they would be sort of like bringing around little pigeons and stuff like that. And eventually, you know, he, when they started to make the transition to human beings, um, they, they had to create new software and stuff like that. So I remember one summer, I, I helped code up some of the new programs that they were going to use. But we never dove, we, we've had, certainly had conversations over it. I mean, it does fascinating work. It's really about how do you, um, how do you accelerate the human learning process so that there's less error and more sort of more immediate theoretical understanding so that you can turn around and just apply it to almost any new fact scenario. So it's relevant in language, it's relevant in military, it's relevant in all sorts of complex scenarios. Hmm. My dad is a pure academic. He loves the research. Hmm. I am a pure applied person. I love, I'm, I'm a mad learner. I study, 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 study. But the question in the back of my head constantly when I study, um, whether it's Buddhism or, you know, like research papers from peer-reviewed journals is how do I apply this in the world? What is the real world application? Mm. I wanted to, I wanted, I want to create things that affect people. Yeah. So that was always a huge difference in the way that we approached it. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, that resonates with me a lot because I, uh, through all the reading and everything that I've done, that's always the question. You just so aptly put it that I was like, "Oh yeah, that's that's the process." <laughs> so take us take us back. So you you grew up outside of New York, graduate high school, and and then what? Like, where does the law kind of fit into that? Yeah. So in the U.S., you go to undergrad and then law school. Law school is three years. It's sort of like grad work. Um, my undergrad was uh, I went to Binghamton, which is a state university in New York. And majored in God knows what. <laughs> um, <laughs> random, random arts. In, if you look it up on paper, the degree says political science, maybe <laughs> maybe with like a minor in business or something like that. The truth is I didn't go to class a whole lot. Um, I also have a lifelong love of music. And what I started doing was actually DJing and mm. um, started DJ and sound and lighting company. And I spent the vast majority of my college years doing that. <laughs> um, <laughs> And uh, until my senior year where I realized I had attended very little class and I had a horrible GPA <laughs> and I got really curious about what I was actually capable of. And I took, you know, I ha actually had to take a ridiculous course load to graduate because I had punted on so many classes after they got hard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't have enough credits to graduate. So I remember begging my way into a class called earthquakes in my senior year. Of college. No way. <laughs> just just because, thing. yeah, just because I needed one credit to be able to graduate. Sorry, mom. <laughs> little anxiety there. Um, was also a really um, physically somatically oriented kid. Still am mm. to this day. I was a gymnast. I trained as a gymnast for the the first 19, 20 years of my life pretty competitively. And then through college years, um, was, 
you know, rock climbing, mountain biking, road cycling. Um, and, uh, so that's always been a really big part of my life as well. So, mm. um, yeah. So, so from there, the, th the law school thing is a bit of an aberration for most people who know me, Yeah, uh, you know, cause the, the logical thing would have been something in business or something physical. Um, and in fact, it, down to the, almost the very last minute, it was a choice between physical therapy school or law school. And for a bunch of bizarre reasons, I ended up choosing law school. But the big one was really, I knew I'd screwed off so much in undergrad. I was genuinely interested in what I was intellectually capable of. And I knew that I had never actually pushed myself to find out. And I was like, you know what? I think it's time. You know, it's sort of, I put on my grown up pants and really lean in and explore. So I didn't have any immediate thing that said, when I graduate, I'm definitely going to practice law. But what I did do is when I went into school, I said, I'm here on a mission. Hmm. You know, my mission is to work, give everything I can and see what I'm capable of. Um, and that's what I spent three years doing. And, and I was fortunate. Um, and I did, I graduated very well and had opportunity after that. And you were in, you specialized in securities, right? I did. I, and which there's this really interesting through line in everything that I've done, which I've only pieced together recently, which is a deep fascination with the psychology of crowds. Mm. So when I was a DJ, I was, I was, you know, at a club until 4 a.m., but I wasn't participating in, I was creating. Mm. the experience. And I knew that I, I knew the beats per minute of every song, you know, of like a thousand albums back then we had vinyl and now it's coming back, which is pretty awesome to see. Yeah. My kid brings home vinyl now. I'm like, oh, <laughs> yes. So excited. I'm like if you knew the collection that I used to have when I had like a big Afro in college. Oh, man. Um, yeah. And, uh, but I, I literally, and I knew that um, by controlling the beats per minute of every song and by moving the pitch slider on my turntables, I could, I could control the social dynamic of hundreds of people in an ecstatic state for hours. Mm. And it was fascinating to see, to watch that unfold, you know. And um, same through line with the stock market and with securities law. Fundamentally, it's the psychology of, of markets. Like how do mass numbers of people trickle down to actually affect, you know, the price of a stock on any given day. Because mm. the price of a stock isn't based on fact, it's based on people. Yeah. Um, so that there was that through line again. So I, I went out and I did that and I ended up started out with the the SEC as an enforcement attorney investigating, you know, like securities fraud and market manipulation and all these big complex things. And then after I did my time there, I went to a private firm in Midtown, kind of like a mega firm where we were raising private equity funds and doing these massive reorganizations. I, I lasted a year, I think right around a year there. Um, my Basically, my body imploded on me from the stress, the, the giving up, like there was zero self-care in my life. Yeah. Massive, massive hours. Um, and I didn't actually want the, the end point. Hmm. Um, I had no interest in becoming a partner. Yeah. Yeah, it's, that's always indicative of whether or not we should be somewhere. Yeah. You know, like whether, whether we want to continue to pursue and, and move down that avenue. Yeah. So. And, and some people did. And some people were willing to actually put in that sacrifice because they really wanted where it was leading. And some people realized they were in it long haul and more deliberately built buffers and built the self-practice and like, mm. you know, like took better care of themselves. Mm, that wasn't me. Yeah. So um, I know that family is a big part for you. No. So when... When does your wife come in? Your, your now wife, yeah. where does she come into the picture in, so in all of this? I started dating her right after, at the end of law school. Okay. Um, yeah. And so we've been together 24 years and married 19. Wow. At this point. Wow. That's yeah. amazing. And do you mind sharing with us the story of how you met? It, yeah. Like, I'm, I'm assuming that there was no online dating mm. back then. So no, it was funny enough. It was actually a blind date. Yes. Um, we, <laughs> I... So somebody who I went to law school with was one of my wife's childhood friends. And my mom ended up getting remarried at, at some point in her life and then sort of living in that same town where my wife grew up. So I got stuck taking a train from New York City back to that town with her then childhood friend who just happened to be on the train. And then the train broke down and we were just like in a holding pattern for like three hours or something like that. So we just started talking. We really didn't know each other all that well. We just knew that we were in school together. And um, at the end of that, she's like, hey, 
can I set you up with somebody? <laughs> I'm like, I guess. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was, it was a blind date. That's amazing. And you guys hit it off immediately? Um, you can tell by that answer. Right? <laughs> we, we, we did, although it definitely took some back and forth. I was kind of um, wrapping up another relationship that mm. I kind of, um, it took a couple of months yeah. of, uh, of seeing us and then not seeing each other for a while and then us getting back in touch. And then, um, yeah, from there. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, you know, relationship dynamics are always, always interesting, but I'm yeah. always fascinated when, when people have been together for, you know, 20 plus years, it's always interesting to understand the sort of like origin story behind it and, and yeah. how it came together. And we spent a lot of years having to figure out who we were as individuals too, as part of the process of like, you know, figuring out who we would be as a couple. Yeah. So, so you would have been late twenties when you met her. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, uh, so you meet who would now become your wife, uh, and you go through, um, this, this phase of, of working really hard. What, what would you, if you could, just cause I know that I've been in that space before of, of pushing myself to the brink, um, of working. And I think that I feel like that resonates with a lot of men. Like what would you go back and tell yourself then? Like what, what routines would you put in place or, um, you know, what would be the sort of sell of, of the, of the self-development in that space? How would you sell it to yourself back then? It's funny. I had a, I had a chance to sit down with Liz Gilbert last year, I guess it was. And she, she, she offered this thought to me. I'm, I'm going to butcher it a little bit, but it was along the lines of um, nothing else matters if the animal that you inhabit is a broke down mess. Mm. You know, and, and it's the truth when you're, the younger you are, the more invincible you are. You know, we all start out that way. And it's probably a good thing because it, it allows us to go into the world to do all sorts of things that we would never do yeah. and test ourselves and sometimes really find out important things. And at the same time, we very often, you know, like then we get a little further into life and um, we get a lot more conservative, but also we stop taking care of ourselves in the name of okay, I'm, I'm mounting responsibilities. Those responsibilities require a certain amount of resources, you know, like money. And for me, and, and then I, I, you build a family and you're like, they're, okay, well, now there's an expectation that those things will continue to be there for the family. Mm. And for me to, to keep that happening, I need to just work maniacally. And, and that requires a certain amount of hours. It's just, it is what it is, except it's not what it is. Mm. You know, it's, I'd make the race car analogy, you know, like you're in, in, in the Indy 500, right? There's, you don't see the, those drivers. You know, like these are the people who are driving the most elite machines in the world and their teams and their zillions of dollars at stake, right? Nobody goes 500 miles without pit stopping. Mm. You know, it's, it's assumed that the only way to keep operating at the absolute peak of what you're capable of operating at is you have to regularly pit stop. Yeah. Right. You've got to continually take care of your, of your, yourself, your car, your wheels, your engine. You've got to, so we, we're, we're not all that different. Mm. You know, we need to do it along the way because if we don't, just like with an Indy 500 car, you're going to blow up. You're going to explode. You know, your gas tank is going to burst. Your engine is going to catch fire and you're going to have to do it then if you survive it. So why not actually develop? the habits and the rituals of doing it along the way. It, it's not a matter of if, yeah. like you have to do that. Yeah. Especially if you, if you want to be able to operate on that highest level in work and business and relationships and life and sport, you know, there's no way around it. Yet we constantly say that I've built so much structure and I have to work maniacally. And that means I can't take care of myself. Mm. And the goal is hopefully I'll survive long enough so that I can pull back from this and then I'll take care of myself. Right. Right. But by then a lot of damage is done. Yeah. And maybe you won't make it there. Mm. And along the way, you're going to be so much more miserable and you're going to be alienated from so many more people. Mm -hmm. um, and look, I'm, I'm raising my hand because I'm, I do, I, I study this and teach this and share this. This is my, my life now. This is my profession. You know, like yeah. built a company around these ideas and wrote a book around these ideas. And yet I'm human. You know, I still fall into that place of, I love what I do so much. I'll sometimes go down the rabbit hole of just working like crazy. Yeah. You know, and fortunately, I actually, my wife is my business partner. 
so we we can pull each other out. If the flip side too is if we both end up going down the rabbit hole simultaneously, that's where one of us kind of needs to like you know like hit the circuit breaker and say this isn't working. Yeah, yeah, that's my yeah. The idea for me is that self care is not an option. It's just a matter of whether you want to do it in after one heinous, painful, you know, like devastating experience, or whether you choose to just dip into it along the way on you know on a regular basis. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really good point, and you know, even with within the context of the, you know, some of the men in our community, you know, I've seen guys who have all that structure, like really built in. They have the structure dialed in to work a lot and and push their edge to create their life and create their family, and you know, all, all those things that they're working towards. But the piece that is often lacking is that self care piece. You know, is is the one to change the oil. Like I love the race car analogy, right? Yeah. Cause you would, you would never go and put a brick on the gas pedal of your car and then just let the car run 24 seven at full throttle right. until you know? the engine blows up. Yeah. Until <laughs> the engine is like, that would just be ludicrous. And yet, you know, uh, oftentimes that's, that's the state that we put ourselves in where we literally just put the brick on the gas pedal and just go, yeah. you know, and just go and go and go. And think about this. So, um, and you know, this from, from your work in opera, I know like there was a time where you practiced insane amount. What the research shows is that, so a chance to talk with um, Kay Anders Erickson, mm. who is the guy, when people cite the 10,000 hour rule, even though it's not the 10,000 hour, it's a complete sort of like misapplication of yeah. his research. What they're doing is they're citing this guy. He did the, re he's, he has done the seminal research on what it takes to be world-class great at almost anything. Mm. And what he says is if you look deeper into the research, the best of the best in the world, they practice only about four to four and a half hours a day. Hmm. To be the best of the best at something in the world, their time, you know, like deep practice in that domain is four and a half hours a day. And it's broken generally into blocks of no longer than about 90 minutes. So what are they doing the rest of that time? So nobody can say that if they're trying to aspire to be you know, extraordinary at something, that they don't have time to do the self-care because it's the time away from that intense, fierce practice, mm -hmm. um, that, that quest to mastery, to, you know, it's the time that you pull away from that, that refuels you, that allows you um, to do that work. And the truth is most of us, like if you work a 12 hour day, there's a really good chance that only three to four hours of that 12 hour day are your best work. Yeah, You know, so why not actually take another chunk of time and devoted to taking astonishing care of yourself so that you can then like go in and say, okay, I'm going to build it so that I have four and a half hours of work that is mind blowing work. Um, because after that, you're just kind of pushing wheels around. Mm -hmm. We all know that. Yeah. You know, you sit in front of your computer after a certain amount of time, reading Facebook the same sentence, or, right? Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, we all know the truth of this. Yeah. You know, so why not really just look at the way that you're sort of investing your energy? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, uh, you know, we'll definitely dive into into some of those pieces and, and, and into the Good Life Project and some of the work that you do. <clears throat> but in the, in the, in the interim, I kind of want to just come back to you've met your wife. Uh, who's going to be your wife? You've gone on to this, you know, law practi practice. What created the transition? Because the thing that I feel like we, you know, that we have a lot in common is that we've had some pretty significant transitions, implosions. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sure, <laughs> yeah. Let's let's call it Tra implosions. Transitions <laughs> sounds nicer. This is this is where I, this is where I, I feel uh, like your story definitely resonates with me in a very deep way because. Um, you know, I've had some pretty significant transitions and, and the more that I learned about you, the more that I see the transitions and, and sort of rebuilding in your life has been a very common theme. And so I'm curious as to, you know, what, what made the transition away from law and no. was, was yoga right after that? Or what, what was the space in between that? Yeah. So the transition away from law was me being in the hospital. Ah. Uh, emergency surgery, perforated intestine, my immune system shut down, infection ate a hole through my intestine from the outside in, wake up call. Yeah. Um, it still took me nine minutes to get out, uh, nine, nine months, not nine minutes. <laughs> I was like, that was, quick. Like, well, that was pretty fast, actually. <laughs> that was really quick, actually. Um, because 
I, I started to make a list of the things that I thought would be cool to do with my living once I knew I was done with this. And mo they were all went back to some blend of entrepreneurship and lifestyle slash fitness. And I knew that I probably would not make much money at all for a while while I learned a new industry. So I, I, I wanted to save up money. So I did that. Um, and then I transitioned out. And for me, the first move was actually making 12 bucks an hour as a personal trainer in a little studio in a townhouse on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And, but I was okay with that because yeah. I was like, look, I'm getting paid something to learn a new industry from the most basic point of service up. And I wanted to learn it from that point, not from a management standpoint, because I wanted to understand again, the human psychology, mm. what's working, what's not working. Um, so I could figure out how to serve better. And six months after that, left, started my own practice. Six months after that, started my first facility. So we built this high-end training facility um, just outside of New York. I took on a partner for that and basically did everything that was the ex exact opposite of the fitness industry um, and flourished quickly. And after about two and a half years, I was ready to move on and sold my interest in that company to an investor group and also wanted to be back in the city. And family was starting to, you know, like um, be a part of things and, um, and, I took about a year off then and started playing with writing and doing other stuff and probably a lot more self-discovery there too. We do have some interesting parallels. <laughs> um, really like, who am I? What do I want? And got interested in yoga around the same time. Hmm. And also my brain sees gaps hmm. um, from like the entrepreneurial side of me is just like, I walk down the street. I'm like, I could fix that. I could fix that. I could fix that. <laughs> like slapping my hand. I'm like, no, 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 it needs fixing. Not by you. Yeah. Um, but I saw, I saw an interesting opportunity in the yoga world to actually create a solution that was needed, which was something that preserved the practice um, or the power of the practice, but lowered barriers to participation to a decidedly like non-indoctrinated, like unfoofy, um, more mainstream population. Mm. Um, so that's what we created. And that's, uh, you know, that's was the story about signing the lease um, to launch that business, that community. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. And so out of the, you know, because community is a, is a huge part of what you do now. And, you know, you've, you've built an, an extraordinary community. And I think it's, you know, uh, outside of the, the podcast and, and the writing and, uh, and, and you're speaking, I, what I see is is that you're very well versed and very well known for community building, and it it is a very exceptional quality that not a lot of people possess. And so, <clears throat> maybe you know, out of that lesson of uh, out of that space of of running the yoga studio and that and and that whole environment, what were some of the keys that you started to see in terms of how to build a really solid community? Yeah. So there are a couple of things that um, really have emerged. One. Let me actually talk to something that most people don't ever talk about. And it's relevant to me, but it's also going to be relevant to at least a third of your listeners, which is that I'm an introvert. You know, like my social orientation, my wiring is is introverted. I move into a room and I'm not the one who just like everyone is like, I'm not the big boastly storyteller or everyone's like flocking. I'm the guy that kind of comes in quietly. Mm. You know, I survey the room. I want to get a beat on what's happening there. I kind of stand off to the side and then I'll just start a quiet conversation off to the side and moving, I move into social situations slowly. Mm. So for me, it's been interesting being that person and also in some way being the person who is building community and, and leading that community. Mm. Um, and always, and so one of the big awakenings for me, because I, is that you can have that social wiring and still um, be somebody who is, is leading and, and building community and um, you just do it in a way that actually honors that wiring for you. And what's so incredible is that because I model that within our community, we have a tremendous, profoundly connected community with a very high level of introverts too, hmm. because they're comfortable. They see that it's actually possible to participate in something bigger and still be who they are and not have to fix anything. Um, and wander out into, we run a, like a giant um, adult summer camp at the end of every summer. And everybody knows there that they see me dipping in and dipping out. And when I'm out, I may well be just walking alone in the woods because that's what I need to do to be okay. Mm -hmm. And you may find a whole lot of other people doing that same thing. So modeling that I think is really important. The other really critical things that I've come to realize are safety. Mm. You need to actually let people know that this is a safe place to just be you. 
Um, and you can't just say that. Again, it's like having, you know, like being a parent to a kid. It doesn't matter what you say. You've got to model the behavior. Um, so maybe that's the third thing is you've got to model the behavior. Whatever the ethos that you say you're, you want to grow, whatever the culture is that you're trying to cultivate, you've got to model all of those, like the, the, the ethos, the behaviors, you got to model it all yourself or else there's this cognitive dissonance. People are like, well, this person says this, but then look at the way they're behaving. There's no way that they really buy that. There's no, the safety of the container breaks. Nobody gets vulnerable, you know, and that's maybe the, another piece is with safety and modeling and people start to get to a point where they start to reveal themselves. And creating a space where um, vulnerability and revelation are part of it, getting to that to that place is is a big part of it. So one of the things that we did with Good Life Project really early on is we put a creed on our website, which basically says, "Here's what we believe," you know. And if you raise your hand, you're like, "Yeah, me too. Awesome." You know, you're in. And if you're like, "This is the stupidest thing on the planet," that's awesome too. You're just <laughs> not one of us. Yeah. You know, but that's totally cool. There will be somewhere else where you find your place, where you belong. You know, um, and that I think has been really, really important for us is is being very bold and forward facing in what we believe. Yeah, I think um, I was actually on the on the way over, and you know, when we started talking a, a few weeks ago, I was checking out the creed on your website. And I think it's the first line. It says, stop trying to be different and start just being you. Yeah. Just own the fact you already are. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's so, you know, it's so profound because in, in a space where everybody's trying to be different, it makes it very hard for people to connect because then they're not being authentically themselves. And, you know, although the sort of Apple credo, you know, which is very popular of think differently, you know, that that's, that's a really popular thing, but you don't necessarily need to be different. And that it's it's within the relatedness oftentimes that we feel very connected to people, right? Do you know what um, I believe is the real Apple creed? Mm. It's not that phrase. It's the commercial that came shortly after it, the crazy ones commercial. Yeah. Um, and that's that's when people are like, oh, that's me. Yeah. Totally. You know, like when you have like, we, you know, we are the crazy ones are the ones who will change the world. And yeah. That's who we are. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's so much power behind that. Yeah. So, okay. So going from the yoga studio uh, and you sell that, uh, what happens in between there and Good Life Project? Well, so the, the last couple of years, I, I own yoga studio for seven years. I also taught. Um, and the, but the last couple of years I had been checking out more and more. I'd pulling back. I was only on the schedule for one class a week. I've worked very little, you know, which some people are like, would you got a great like business? You know, it's, and you don't actually have to, you've got a great staff and they're running it, you know, you're you minimal involvement, just roll with it. Yeah. But one of the things I realized is that um, it's always, as an entrepreneur, as long as you own something, it's always taking up bandwidth, yeah. you know, cognitive and emotional bandwidth, you know. And the other thing is that because it was a business built on community, community needs a shepherd. They can't have somebody who's checked out. It's not fair to that community. So it was time to sell that. And in those sort of like the last year or two, I had also gotten, started getting back into my interest in writing and sold my first book. So I was starting to work on that and I started to realize that the future of book marketing was actually online. And um, and that was my entree into the, the online world. It had nothing to do with some sort of like noble thing to build community online or build. It was just like, how do I sell more books when this book comes out? <laughs> and to me, like back then it was blogging was the only thing that was really happening online. It wasn't really even happening then. It's like Tim Ferriss and a couple of other people were starting to do stuff. So that was the transition and I realized it was time to to sell. And fortunately we were doing nicely and that was able to happen. Yeah, I just immediately shifted into working on the next book or working on the first book and developing an online platform. Huh. And so where did the where did the idea or insight for the first book even come from? Like was it just that you started writing again and then and you just said, you know what, I yeah. think I'm just gonna write a book? No, I had actually been consulting on and off during a chunk of the years in the yoga studio with people for marketing and storytelling and I I've for some reason through the years I, I've developed a certain coherence with marketing um, and storytelling. And so I, I would, I had a lot of people coming to me for advice and I kind of was like, you know what, let me distill this all into one thing. Um, and that became the first book, which was Career Renegade, which essentially, and also it was a question of mine. Pretty much everything I write is answering a question that I have and, and hoping it's also a question that a lot of other people have. So the question there was, 
if the thing that you feel that you're called to do, there is no conventional, clear conventional path to actually turning that into your living, what are, are there unconventional ways you might be able to explore it to actually make it your living? Um, and that's what that book really explores. It's, it's funny. I recently found a copy of it. I'm like, A, a little bit mortified by the writing and B, I'm like, it's hardly, hardly out of date. Um, and uh, at some point, actually only audiobook writes to that. At some point, I may come out with like an updated <laughs> audiobook version. Um, that when the I wrote that book. perfectionist reveals well, himself. Right. When, I, when I wrote the book, I'll, to give you an example, this was a time when Twitter was really new. And like every third minute it was going down and there was what we called the fail well up on Twitter. Like the whole system was down. And we didn't know if it would be around by the time the book was published. So I'm like, all right, but I'll include it because if it is around, it could be important. And then I mentioned this guy who was like one of the mega power influencers on Twitter back then named Steve Rubell. And I was like, Steve Rubell has 4,000 followers on Twitter. (laughs) 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 And now like you could buy that on Fiverr in about 24 hours (laughs) if you really wanted to. But yeah, I mean, actually the core information there, I'm still really proud of and it's still 100% valid. And and I still get um, emails and comments about um, people who are reading the book now. But yeah, the, the granular details, um, some of it needs to be updated. Very cool. <laughs> but that was what it was about. It was answering a question for me that a lot of people were coming to me for. So I was like, okay, mm. let's put this into something bigger and release it into the world. Yeah, it's interesting because I, you know, I think there's a ton of people out there. And you know, for those of you out there who are asking that question as well, definitely go check out Career Renegade because it's, you know, it's that type of information, you know, that Two two and a half years ago, I would have loved to have. Two years ago, I would have loved to have. As I started on the journey of creating man talks and then looking at what's the exit strategy and how do I build something like this. Yeah. Um, Just think that there are probably some more updated resources when you read it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll include it in the show notes. Uh, okay, so you write Career Renegade. Uh, you end up selling the yoga studio and... And and then how does this you know how does yeah, how does good the, life like what's the, what's the good time life project in there? starts in a couple of years later? Um, so I had actually been working on my second book, and um, so like for me, I'm like I'm going down the author speaker online yep. path. I'm like cool, and um, so sorry because at that time it was you know JonathanFields.com. Yeah, and you, that was you know, my you, main you're, you're doing speaking writing writing. writing. You, um, so you're you're a thought leader. Uh, I hate that word. <laughs> I know most people do. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking and putting it out into the world. <laughs> Somebody tried calling me that Leader? the other day and I was like, no, nope, like, no. Nope. Like, do my thoughts lead? Uh, no, I'm just a dude. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, but I'm, I'm writing, speaking and just sharing ideas. Awesome. And, um, and, and I was fortunate. I signed a second book deal and that again, answered a question that I had, which is that I'm wired to create stuff, but I've always bled along the way. Um, I don't handle the process of living in a place of sustained uncertainty well. And, but I know that that is what you have to do if you want to create really good stuff, whether it's an author, an entrepreneur, an artist, or in relationships, it's all the same stuff. You've got to develop the skill set to be able to be okay in the space of uncertainty for an extended period of time. And I want to know, do you either have it or not? Is it genetic or is it trainable? And if it's trainable, how? And that's what that book was about. And again, that was largely for me. You know, and what I learned was a lot of people had similar questions. Yes, we put that into the world. And then the end of 2011, I got into the habit as a blogger of writing these annual year and reflection posts. So in January 2012, I was writing that about the year before, and it turned into this like almost 40-page Warren Buffett-style annual report that was designed and all this beautiful stuff. And I put that out into the world, and the, it, it kind of caught fire. The response was tremendous. And then at the end of that, I teased this thing called my Ten Commandments of Business, and I said, there's something coming called Good Life Project. Honestly, at the time, I don't think I knew what that was. <laughs> but but I'm, I'm like classic, you know, like ready, fire, aim, entrepreneur. Yeah, it's yeah. like, put it out there, test it, see if people respond. But I did know there was a certain ethos that I wanted to bring to business that I didn't see. You know, exalting love as a core ideal in business, honoring the role of serendipity in business, of, of grace and service and humor. You know, these are not common things. And I wanted to offer a way to do it differently. So the first thing we actually did in Good Life Project was launch a program, which was then almost a year long program called the Immersion, which was sort of a an accelerated business and life program, immersion program. 
And we built that over a period of years, you know, larger and larger and larger. But the reason I did that first is because I knew I also wanted to produce media and have conversations, amazing conversations. But I wanted to produce them on a broadcast level. Mm. And, and back then I wanted to film them with a crew. And to afford that, we needed money coming in first. So we launched the education side of the company first. That then turned around and funded the media. And then we grew into this, you know, like uh, and we started producing um, shows, video shows that we would air. And the audience for the show grew really beautifully. And after about two years of doing that, I realized that um, our community, the community that started growing around it, um, was really more in the middle years of their lives. And they weren't sitting there watching an hour a video. They were all listening to it around the same time podcasting was taking off. So we started switching to audio and that thing just took on a life of its own and we wound down video. And we've been kind of on the media side of what we do now. Audio is really the central focus, though. I'm jonesing to do some video visual storytelling right now. So we'll probably do some one-off, almost mini-doc type things. Yeah. And then we started just building all sorts of different programming. So, you know, not entirely around entrepreneurship and and um, with everything that we did, we would always make sure that we built community as part of it because that is the unlock key. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a it's a huge part of everything that you've built, and, yeah. and I think everything that you're known for. In terms of, I read this great story about you speaking at WDS mm. in 2011. You know, I, I know how important family is to you. Do do you mind sharing that story with us? Yeah, and, sure. With uh, with the hearts, because I, I think it gives a it gives a good insight into what people can expect, not only from you and your work, but what people can expect from the ethos of, of what Good Life Projects actually stands for. Yeah, I mean, completely unplanned. Um, I was a closing keynote for World Domination Summit the first year, 2011. And I got on stage, I did a talk, it was, it was, I felt great about it, great reception. And after that, um, a bunch of the speakers got called up. We were doing a little panel. We were all sitting in sort of like bar stools lined up. And somebody asked a question, which was something like, um, what inspires you? And so we started going down the row and I was the last person. And the whole time as everybody, like my, my fellow speakers were answering the question, I'm looking at the, the stage monitor, which is a couple of feet down in front of me. And, and, and not because of what was on, you know, on the screen, but when I came up on stage, I brought two things with me. One was the back of an envelope with a couple of words jotted on it. So if I completely went blank, you know, like I could look at it and remind me what I was about to say. The other was um, was a, a, a little um, drawing from my daughter who had drawn a whole bunch of hearts in different colors. And it was just sitting there next to it because it reminded me that everything would be okay. This is what matters. And But nobody else saw that. It was only there for me. But as everybody's you know, the speakers are going down the line answering the question. I just keep looking at that. I'm like, so when it came to me, I just, you know, I was like, I got up, I reached, reached down, I took the picture and I just held it up in the air and I said this, you know, and I showed everybody the picture of the hearts. I said, this is what matters to me. This is what inspires me. Cause you know, it, I, I know that when I go home, no matter what happens here, no matter how I do, you know, I'm going to get hugs and kisses from my kid. Mm. And that's what matters. That's, that is, that's what she inspires me. The way she is in the world inspires me. And me knowing that that's what I get to come home to, that inspires me. I still have that heart to this day. And when I speak, I travel with it. Amazing. Yeah. That's, a, that's, a good, that's like a great thing to bring with you. What's interesting is um, it came full circle this summer because I was the opening keynote for WDS this year. <laughs> and my wife and my daughter were in the audience. Amazing. And I closed the, I opened the talk by, by telling that story. But nobody knew I had the heart with me. And at the end of it, I had it on the monitor the whole time too. And at the end of it, I reached over and I held up the heart. And my daughter was in the audience also. And so that was kind of, you know, like she's a teenager. So I'm sure she just thought like, oh, dad. <laughs> <laughs> but I know deep down, you know, it was, it was a moment of connection. Uh, kind of all came full circle. That's amazing. Uh, with the Good Life Project and all the work that you and the organization are doing now, how have you managed to build such an engaged community? Like, how do you keep all these people engaged internationally? We don't. No? No. Self-regulate? Like, the community's it's, regulated? It, this actually kind of really, it touched down this year. My, my wife and I were sitting there at camp. And there was a moment where we just kind of looked at ourselves. And we're like, this is, so, this is, we've hit the point where this is now bigger than us. Um, so we have, people are just forming groups. You know, we have our own central groups and we're actually literally about to just launch one just big general group for everybody who comes into our 
community because we've had it in, in sort of isolated pockets. But what we've seen is that, you know, if you go to Portland, Oregon, every Monday morning, there's a Gleeper co-working group where you can just drop in and hang out with a bunch of people from our community. Cool. Cities around the world, they're just, they're starting it themselves because they connect with us, with our message. A lot of them are campers that then want to take that ethos back. So it's, we've thought about like, do we engineer this? Do we create like a very strict set of guidelines? And we still play with that idea sometimes. We're so busy doing other stuff right now. And, and people are so connected with who we are and just the community that we're creating and, and the value set that we share that they're doing it themselves right now. Um, they're leading the charge. It's sort of, it's moved beyond what we're pushing and, and they're pulling us. Was that was that like the end goal for you, or was that was that a a result that you wanted to have happen, or is that just something that's organically and and naturally unfolded uh, as as a result of the work that you've done? Yeah, I think it's we've we've spent a lot. Of, I keep saying we because this is not me. There's nothing I do is me. So we've spent a lot of time thinking about that and have never said, okay, this is the way it has to be. And I think it's just kind of cool right now that the community is telling us this is the way we want it to be. Mm. You know, so we'll probably land on some sort of sweet spot um, between sort of trying to ensure that, you know, the quote brand values and what we're about goes out there and is is uh, carried forward in, in a way that really represents us. And at the same time, the thing that represents us better than anything else and what we believe in are the people who are carrying it forward. So as long as they're really a part of what we were creating we kind of have faith that they'll do it right too. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, well, just because we have to wrap up here for for time, I wanted to, um, I know that you have kind of come full circle in the writing again and, yeah. and you've just released uh, just released a, a new book. And so can you give us some insight? Because I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to read this. So yeah. tell, tell us all, all about us. Yeah, this has been quite a journey. The name of the book is How to Live a Good Life, which is you know, like the height of arrogance for anybody to write a book. <laughs> that name, it's like, <laughs> You're like, what's the most? <laughs> right. I told my publisher once, we should make the subtitle The Final Word. <laughs> like, kidding, kidding, really. <laughs> Just okay. kidding. But maybe. <laughs> um, no, I mean, it's really, you know what? I've been so blessed to spend a lot of years now um, learning and growing, going inside, but then also more recent, the last five years, traveling the world and sitting down with some of the most astonishing embodied teachers alive across almost every spectrum, every field of work and life. And I've had the opportunity to see a lot of patterns emerge from that. So the idea with the book is to really distill a lot of what I learned into super simple ideas and things to do. So what my greatest hope for this book is that people don't just read it, they do the book. They're literally, I mean, there are days and days and days of things to do. Um, and they're and they're offered in a way where they take into account the fact that we're all, we've, we've all got full lives. We don't want to have to add burden to it. These are all very, very often short, sweet things that you can try you don't need faith. You don't need belief. Let your own experience prove whether it's valid for you or not. Um, but these are the things that have been difference makers, good life levers. Amazing. Well, and, and where can people pick it up? Is it in stores? everywhere. It's yeah. online? It's everywhere? Online stores, yeah. Everywhere. Amazing. All right. Well, we'll include that in the show notes as awesome. well. And thank you so much for coming on uh, on the podcast. It's been fantastic. And it was wonderful to get a chance to sit down and and, uh, and just speak with you. Not, not even interview, just like have a great conversation with you. So thank you for your time. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. 